Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. Welcome to Significant Others. I'm Liza Powell O'Brien, and as we get ever closer to season two, I swear it's coming, we have another bonus episode. I would call it the penultimate bonus episode because I think we have one more before season two starts, but that would drive my husband and my best friend absolutely crazy. So instead, I'll just say that I'm so thrilled to be talking today with Liza Mundy, journalist and author of the book, The Sisterhood, The Secret History of Women at the CIA. Liza, thank you so much for being here. I can't wait to hear all about what you learned on this subject. But just to orient us, could you give us kind of an overview? My book is really a history of the CIA, our most important uh, intelligence agency and one of the most important intelligence agencies in the world. And the the best known job at the CIA is to be what's called a case officer, which is a bland term for spy. Mm-hmm. And these are essentially the fighter pilots of the CIA I mean, in the sense that it's the most prestigious sought after and uh, for decades and decades, traditionally male uh, mm-hmm. posting in which a person works undercover overseas, often under diplomatic cover. So has a fake identity, has a pseudonym, which the officer uses in his or her uh, real job, which is to spy on behalf of the United States and to convince foreign nationals to commit treason in their own country, to break the law by passing secrets or documents or technology to the United States in order to inform the president and national security community. Uh, so that's the that's the most sought after job at the CIA. There's also a huge cadre of analysts back at the CIA. We forget this, that once this intelligence gets collected overseas that the president needs, uh, it has to be passed back to the CIA in Langley, where um, thousands of uh, very well-educated, well-versed analysts consider this new piece of intelligence that has come in and they decide how urgent it is and and write up analyses that, if they're important, find their way to the president. So, so my book is a history of how, since its inception after World War II, uh, the CIA needed women and hired women and tried to channel and pigeonhole women into these positions, either analyzing intelligence or archiving intelligence, because all of this top secret, incredibly um, hard won information not only has to be analyzed, but has to be archived and kept so it can be retrieved. And mm-hmm. and and so the CIA built over the course of decades an incredible file card collection. A lot of this top secret information was handwritten on three by five cards. Mm-hmm. And there were women who were put in charge of that who were called the vault women or the mm-hmm. sneaker ladies. And they knew everything. They knew every secret. So all of the information that the vault women would provide would help 
the case officer figure out, how am I going to bump this person? Like, how am I going to casually meet this person? How am I going to strike up a conversation? What might I know about him? And uh, and then how am I going to persuade him to break the law, put his own life at risk and spy for the United States? So so my book tells the story of how the CIA originally hired women into that kind of a job. Mm-hmm. Um, it was m- way more than secretarial, although women were also for sure hired as secretaries and clerks to handle all this paper mm-hmm. uh, that is is critical to a spy service's success. And and so women were channeled into these kinds of jobs. But over the decades, there were women who fought their way into the spy corps, women who wanted to be the fighter pilot, who knew that their gifts and talents lent themselves to maneuvering in a foreign country, being inconspicuous and underestimated, these qualities that are fantastic Mm -hmm. if you're working undercover trying to get people to spy. And one of the things that you know, I I think we'll talk about today is the way in which also this other category of wives, Mm -hmm. CIA wives, uh, facilitated their husbands' careers and contributed to uh, the success of their case officer husbands in a way that was just that. There's a chapter of the book called Housewife Cover, and that was really one of my favorite chapters to research and write. I cannot wait to hear more about that. <laughs> to talk a little bit about the framework of the time, you you sort of say that post-World War II, they were more heavily recruited into these roles. Were women at all present in the CIA before that? Was that um, completely new? So the CIA was created in 1947, and during World War II, that was when we built a civ- our first civilian spy service, we be in the United States, uh, not you and me. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and that's a, a really interesting period also, because when we were surprised at Pearl Harbor, the mm-hmm. Pearl Harbor attack that launched the United States into World War II, that was a massive intelligence failure. Mm-hmm. And that exposed the fact that the United States, which currently has 18 intelligence agencies, uh, the Space Force being the most recent, uh, had nothing when we were entering World War II. We had no CIA. We had no NSA. We had no director of national intelligence. And, and so we had to scale up overnight, as suddenly we're sending all of these young men into harm's way across the Atlantic or in the Pacific, we all of a sudden knew that we had no way to know what the enemy was was planning. And so the Office of Strategic Services was created. It was the predecessor Hmm. to the CIA. And then at that time, many, many thousands of women were recruited into this effort because the the guys were all shipping off to fight. So as we're building these intelligence agencies, it was this tragic, glorious moment Hmm. where women for the first time were competed for. Their talents Hmm. and gifts were competed for, particularly college-educated women in the intelligence services. So there were thousands of women recruited to build the spy service during the war. After the war, in spying as in every other... um, Sector, really, yeah. (laughs) Women were told, thanks very much, ladies. You know, you knew this was just going to be temporary. Okay, (laughs) maybe you enjoyed it. Maybe you felt valued, but it's time to go home and and make way for the returning men so there would be jobs for them. So I don't know if this came up in your reporting. I I suspect at least part of it did. When when women were sort of forced admittance to some of these roles— I don't really subscribe much to, you know, some genders being particularly good at one thing or the other. However, um, I can imagine that there are some strengths that maybe women were demonstrating in some of these positions. Was that like recorded at all that they say, oh, it turns out they're actually really good at this or that? 
Oh, absolutely. Because there was a series of studies done starting in the 1950s. There was a study done called the Petticoat Panel when some, but it was really (laughs) called that. And, and uh, some of the women who had stayed on after the war uh, and hung on were, were, were dissatisfied with why they were not being promoted the same way that men were. And so some studies would be done in the 1950s. And then when lawsuits started being filed in the 1970s and (laughs) and the men, the men really, interviewed, just didn't hesitate to share their stereotypical views of what women could and couldn't do. And Mm. the belief was that women were patient and careful and diligent. And so they would be great working in the vaults, but that women would not be taken seriously in male-dominated cultures, which was every culture in the world. Mm -hmm. And again, that women lacked the sort of balls or moxie to close these deals and to and to convince somebody to spy and lacked the ability to to stick with it. To, you, once you once you recruit an asset, you have to handle that person. You have to watch out for that person's well-being and safety, teach them how to have meetings, teach them how to stay safe, and often teach them how to work a miniature camera, you know, how to take surreptitious photos. And so there's a lot of tradecraft that a person would have to be taught. And it was it was believed and, and held. Also, the belief was that when a woman got married, she would quit. Mm-hmm. And so she wasn't worth the training dollars that were going to be put into teaching her tradecraft because she was just going to quit. And of course, what was never recognized was that many of the women in my book, if they intended to get married, they wanted to have tandem careers if they married a, a fellow spy mm-hmm. and they wanted to stay with the service. They didn't want to quit and they were made to quit mm-hmm. or, or made to resign and then become housewives who helped who helped their husbands. But what what women also, the strength that it turned out that women had in this situation was the ability to move around inconspicuously, to be taken for granted, to be underestimated, to have people in foreign countries think, oh, she's just a secretary. She's not important. We're not going to bother to surveil her or follow her or track her because what what, what could she know that's important? And so it turned out that women's inconspicuous being underestimated was a huge advantage. Mm. And it also turned out, and we should have known this from World War II, actually, is that when it comes to handling an asset, to taking care of somebody, this may or may not be an innate you know, genetic trait that women have, but women certainly have tens of thousands of years of specialized training and taking care of people. And and during World War II, there was a remarkable American woman named Virginia Hall. And if people have heard of anybody working in American espionage during World War II, it's probably Virginia Hall. There's a wonderful book about her called A Woman of No Importance. And Mm -hmm. she operated in occupied France because she spoke fluent French and she was posing undercover as a French woman. And she ran a network of French women who would help exfiltrate allied airmen if they were shot down in occupied France, they would hopefully be smuggled out in order to fly again, mm-hmm. as opposed to being captured by the mm-hmm. Germans. And so she and and French women would um, would pose as girlfriends of, of these guys, and they would teach them how to be how to pose as a Frenchman and how to smoke French cigarettes mm-hmm. and how to wear French clothes and how to not look like an American and how to not walk like an American. And so she ran an exfiltration network uh, in which she had to take care of the airmen and had to take care of the women who were working as part of the network. So. It really should have been recognized that, if anything, women had certain either innate 
qualities or ingrained qualities uh, that would enable them to be very good at taking care of and handling assets. Uh, And again, the ability to just seem unimportant. And that is a great asset. (laughs) I have undervalued it all my life, apparently. (laughs) Um, Okay, so so eventually women do start muscling their way, for lack of a better term, into these positions of more import and more influence. Does that, are we skipping over the housewifing chapter is that what it's called yeah and there's 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 a period where it really blends mm-hmm. and uh and that in in this chapter called housewife Co- housewife cover um readers would meet uh the a woman named lisa harper who was recruited out of pembroke college which was the woman's college at brown university in 1966, and she was recruited to join the clandestine service with the hope on her part of becoming a case officer, becoming a spy, the the fighter pilots of the CIA. And instead, they tried to route her. They had just sort of dangled this um, manipulatively. And once she signed on, they tried to route her into the um, to become a reports officer, which is working at a desk in a foreign station, handling the reports, then sending them back to Langley. And that's an important job, but it's not the job she wanted. And so she battled her way into the spy service. But when she married a colleague, she was made to resign mm. her position. She was yelled at for wasting training dollars and mm. she was made to resign. And and, and y- you express like, what? You know, and, and, and what we forget, because we didn't necessarily ever know it, but during the 70s, the 80s in the at the CIA, but also in the U.S. State Department. If a female officer got married, she was made to resign. I know. And you think, in what? In the 70s and I know. 80s. Yeah. Wow. And so, uh, and so this was true in the diplomatic corps as well. It was thought, it was thought that a woman, it was, it was still thought that a woman's place once she got married was to su- be supportive to her husband and to raise children. And it was certainly thought that a female officer, either a diplomat or a spy, whose job was going to be overseas, would never find a, a husband who would follow her and support her in not financially, but support her logistically in the way that a diplomat or a spy would need to be supported by a spouse. And so women had been expected to do this for their husbands and still were. So this idea that had been in place now for for decades, that if a diplomat went overseas, a male diplomat or a male spy, of course his wife would come with him. Mm -hmm. And of course she would be expected to work unpaid on behalf of the U.S. government. And and so if she was the wife of a diplomat, she would be expected to um, stuff Christmas baskets, to roll bandages, to host really important receptions and cocktail parties, really to work full time on behalf of her husband's career. And her husband would be evaluated in his performance evaluations. In part, one of the categories would be, did his, was his wife a full partner? Wow. So with Lisa Harper at the CIA, she was expected to fill that role for her husband now. And so she had to resign, but she still went overseas with him. And she used her training to help out in the station to 
uh, to handle people, to to venture out on a rainy night to pass a message when nobody, none of the paid people in the station wanted to do it. And this was just what was expected. Mm. And so, uh, you know, eventually she would get paid a little bit as a secretary at the station, but nothing like she started as a GS7 uh, and she was being paid, if at all, as like a GS3, like what a secretary mm. would be paid. So she was, but, but she was working effectively under what was called housewife cover. She was literally a housewife at this point. Um, the hardship for a CIA wife was that she had to, her husband would be working overseas ostensibly as a U.S. diplomat mm. under diplomatic cover. So he had a day job as a diplomat. He had a night job as a spy. Mm. So she had to help him out as a spy and she had to help him out as a diplomat mm. as well. So she had to fill all the functions of a diplomat's wife. But then she had to be ready if if a secret needed to be passed that her husband was unavailable to to pass, she she would go out and do it. Or if there was a message that needed to be picked up, it's called a dead drop, picking up a message from under a park bench or or receiving a handoff when somebody passes a, a, a piece of paper to you in a newspaper. The wife would do that and she could do it convincingly again because she's inconspicuous. And another really important part of a job, particularly in countries that were either um, communist occupied or adjacent uh, would be to handle a walk-in. And, and that's a really important intelligence gathering asset is a person who hasn't been recruited, hasn't been spotted at a diplomatic party uh, and wives help with that kind of spotting as well. But um, a person who has secrets they want to volunteer. And so the person finds out who the local CIA officer probably is and just presents himself at the doorstep. And that's a really pivotal moment because that person might be surveilled by the KGB and it's about to be grabbed. So if the CIA officer is off on another assignment and somebody rings a doorbell in the middle of the night, the wife is the one who answers the phone and the wife has to know who to call, what the code signal is. Uh, and, and all of this critical tradecraft, the wives had to be trained in as well. Uh, so my, the character in my book, the real life character of Lisa Harper, is trained how to do all of this vitally difficult, scary, risky, high stakes tradecraft. But for about 10 years, she had to do it unpaid, working as a housewife on behalf of her husband. And she would eventually insist upon being sent back to the CIA training facility called The Farm and insist upon being given the full training and then hired hmm. as uh, as as a case officer herself. It would it would cost her her marriage. Ultimately, um, wow. she and her husband served together in some assignments in Africa, but she quickly emerged as such a superior officer. Her is many people told wow. me her gifts and talents at this job were such that it created stress in their marriage. And oh also, God. she was still kind of responsible for helping him, but she wasn't receiving any of the kind of help that um, that her male colleagues were accustomed to receiving. And and it turned out and that once they separated and she served in Paris, um, her first solo tour, it was just easier, you know, oh, for wow. her. Even even as though there were hardships, because part of the way in which a CIA officer figures out who to recruit from a foreign country is by spotting people at diplomatic cocktail parties. You know, who who has the information I need, who might be recruitable, who could I sidle up to over cocktails and invite home um, for dinner? Because I think this is another important part of 
housewives and how they helped. Anybody who watches James Bond movies and who doesn't thinks that a lot of spy work is, you know, takes place in casinos and on skiers, you know, on, right. on, on ski slopes. And it's <laughs> and it, it almost never does. And and instead, what happens is you see somebody and you might bump them in the grocery aisle at yeah. the local grocery store, literally, uh, or you might meet them at a reception or a bar. But then you invite that person to your home mm-hmm. because that's the quiet em- environment where the case officer is in control of the situation and you wind that person and you dine them and you cook them to dinner and you invite them back. And in this quiet, clandestine environment is when you make that ask ultimately. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this, again, was a setting in which wives were incredibly important mm-hmm. And really expected to produce high-level meals at a moment's notice. I'm just thinking of all the ways I would get my husband killed in this scenario. I would be absolutely the worst recruit. I don't want to have anyone over ever. I'm going to bed at 8 o'clock. I don't care what else is happening. I'm a total blabbermouth. I cannot keep a secret. It would be all over. Well, if not killed, fired. You know, his his career would tank. But, you know, also to to that to that. point. During the Cold War, a lot of wives were on board. They would do their Mm -hmm. best, at least, because they believed, rightly so, in the Mm -hmm. anti-communists. This was an existential contest between the United States and the Soviet Union. A nuclear war was always, you know, a real possibility that people lived with. And so the women really bought into this and they did their best. Even mm-hmm. so, like you, I, I feel the same way. I might not have had the ability, but I would have tried, I think. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And but but when we move into the 60s and the 70s and the Vietnam War mm-hmm. and the CIA's presence in Southeast Asia, you know, wives became disenchanted sure. with what they were seeing. It was, you know, the CIA had an ambivalent, sort of ambiguous role during the Vietnam War. There was certainly involvement in the Phoenix program and some of these what became assassination programs that cost many, many civilian lives. But the CIA's analysis about the course that the Vietnam War was taking and the likely likely outcome was was good. And so they were telling the president things that he didn't want to hear about the likely outcome. But, But wives became much more conflicted mm-hmm. over helping during that period. And um well I imagine many of their children were also being yeah. yes, you know, exactly drafted. Exactly. To- so uh, right, right. And so um just as you say, it would have been hard enough at any time. Mm. But when you're not so sure anymore that you believe in the mission, mm. uh, then it becomes it becomes uh even yeah. more complicated. Yeah, I would imagine. Yeah. And and the other thing The other thing that wives had to contend with was it was very common. There was a lot of what we would, and this is such a problematic verb, but there was a lot of what we would call womanizing in Mm. the spy corps. And there was a lot of pathological infidelity. And while Bill Donovan and then Alan Dulles, who was one of the most famous early directors of the CIA, they were just unfaithful um, I mean, they would have been me tooed out of the workplace, mm-hmm. one hopes, very, very soon. So, but, but it, so a lot of behavior was accepted in the male spy corps. And, and ultimately, a lot of marriages ended and, and there was taking of second wives, you know, and, and remarrying and, and, um, and, and so these wives who had served faithfully overseas for decades, if they were divorced from their husbands, 
whether or not they wanted to be divorced, they were entitled to no pension, no benefits, right. no financial recognition of their service. And um, one of my one of my favorite anecdotes in this book is when Barbara Colby, the wife of CIA director William Colby, decides to write that wrong. And she uses her graciousness and her intellect and her social skills and her social standing. And she sails into all these Senate offices, John Stennis, and all the, you know, old Southern lawmakers who are very charmed by mm-hmm. Barbara Colby, who just knows how to work a cocktail uh, reception and, you know, a Senate office. And she helps bring about, with the help of Pat Schroeder, one of the first female members of Congress, a law that guarantees wives and ex-wives who have served overseas for their husbands um, for, I think it was 10 years at least, a portion of their husband's pension and a portion wow. of their husband's benefit. And that wow. was, she She did essentially what was called, she ran an operation against uh-huh. the CIA itself. Wow. Uh, what year was that? Uh, that took place, oh gosh. Um, Our era. Yeah. It, 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 I think it started in the 19... 19- 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, and I, I'm trying, I think the law was also passed in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Could have even been the early 90s, but I think it was in the 80s. Uh, and so, you know, she had been described as one, as probably the most loyal CIA wife ever. Oh. And uh, and ultimately the Colbys would divorce. And um, but but she was doing this before that occurred mm-hmm. on behalf of of the wives. And then she she um helped run an operation along with an, another woman working in the um, the office that helped CIA families, liaison with CIA families, they ha- they realized that it was still very difficult for an ex-wife to even find out about these benefits because this woman's husband would have been working undercover under pseudonym. And the CIA doesn't like to even acknowledge that somebody ever worked there. Right. And so she would call some central number and say, well, my husband so-and-so-and-so worked at the CIA and now we're divorced and I think I'm entitled to these benefits. And they we told, we don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. We've never heard of him. Right. And and so and so they um they Barbara Colby and and a couple of Confederates on the inside, it was an inside job, uh, reached out to all of these ex-wives, all the ones they could track down. Mm-hmm. And literally some guys had like four. And oh and uh, and they called them all uh, they got them all onto um, the campus of Langley and, and had a meeting in this facility called the bubble. It's the auditorium. And they explained to them how to obtain their benefits. Wow. Oh, that's a great <laughs> that scene. Great. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. My cat Rachel is the silliest cat I know. One time, she played inside a paper bag for three hours. What a mystery. But I'm glad her health isn't. Thanks to the color-changing litter from Fresh Step Crystal's Health Monitoring Litter. This premium color-changing litter has pH-activated crystals that can help me detect potential illness early. That makes it easy for me to stay on top of her health and well-being. 
I may not understand all of Rachel's silly quirks, but I can keep up with the important things. Find Fresh Step Crystals Health Monitoring Litter at a store near you. Fresh Step is a registered trademark of the Clorox Pet Products Company. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. I know you were focusing on on women, but I'm wondering if there were any, especially now that I think the, you know, sounds like the gender divide has broken down a little mm-hmm. bit at the CIA. Um Thanks to the law. Are there any stories of male spouses that are playing a supportive role to the female operative? Yes. And and I should also say that I interviewed men, male case officers, including a, a wonderful man named Mike Sulik, who became head of the clandestine service and was very, very happy to talk about the contributions of his late wife, Shirley Sulik, a black woman married to a white man. And she served in Moscow with him. Not, wow. When I say served, she she supported his mm-hmm. career as a wife. And she was incredibly vitally important to and very enthusiastic about uh, car chases and eluding Soviet wow. surveillance and helping him elude Soviet surveillance so that he could do what they call drop a foot, which is jump out of the car <laughs> in order to communicate with an asset. And Shirley was apparently just a wonderful person. Mm-hmm. She died a couple of years ago, and and he was very, very happy to talk about his role. So I just want to hasten to say that there are definitely men who recognize mm-hmm. the incredible role that their wives played. But to your point about supportive male spouses now, the, the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. And one of the people I interviewed interviewed um, is now Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger. She's a member of Congress from Mm -hmm. Virginia. Uh, She's going to run for governor in Virginia. And um, her, well, she was a case officer overseas and uh, and she was married at the time. And this was before really the heyday of of working remotely. Mm. But her, uh, she, they have children and her spouse did have the kind of job that would enable him to work remotely mm. overseas and and be the, you know, the hands-on member of the household. Because if you're a CIA case officer, even in this day and time, when you're off on a, um, a, a meeting with an asset, which can take a couple of days because you have to take a, 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 they call it a surveillance detection route, a very complex route to even get to your meeting, and then a complex route to get home. So she would be basically incommunicado for a couple of days. Mm. So you really, the spouse really does have to be the at-home, hands-on mm. spouse, particularly if they're children. Mm. And and it's still a challenge for women and men, um, this kind of job. But she did have a spouse who was willing to be what they call the trailing spouse mm. uh, and and to facilitate her career. But it is still really challenging for for parents. And yeah. and she, I think, ironically enough, finds that 
I think she has three kids. Um, they find finds that being a member of Congress, believe it or not, is more conducive to <laughs> family life. Par- yeah, to family life. Aye, aye, aye. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have lots of questions also about the history of um, same-sex romance and marriage yeah, in, exactly. in the CIA. Is and, that yes? And thank you, thank too? you for mentioning that because you know there were decades and decades where if you were gay or lesbian, you were not hired. That's right. You would be hammered in your polygraph on. It was called mm-hmm. the lifestyle mm-hmm. questions, and you would be hammered. Have you ever slept in bed with a, wo- to oh, a woman? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you've asked, have you ever slept in the same bed with a woman? You know, what are your sexual fantasies or what, you know, what sort of thoughts do you have? Have you ever kissed a woman? And so you would be weeded out if the polygrapher could um, could could Get find you. any information. <laughs> yeah. uh, and and then if any same-sex behavior in when it, among people who were hired, you would be just booted out immediately no recourse. Uh, and it wasn't, I think it was the 90s when, right. you know, when that was... Uh, Would that have been part of Don't Ask, Don't Tell? Right. Yeah, yeah, I think it might have happened before Don't Ask, Don't Tell, because that's the military. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, it was, you know, it, it shouldn't have been the case ever. Um, sure. But the, and, and the assumption was that this person would be more subject to blackmail. And, right. but, you know, again, the heterosexual shenanigans that were taking place routinely, mm-hmm. um, including by one Aldrich Ames, mm-hmm. who is the famous CIA officer who betrayed his country and the agency by passing uh, the names of Soviet agents who were working mm-hmm. for the USS. By, for the U.S., passing those names to the KGB, and those agents were executed. Mm. And and Aldrich James was um, womanizer, drinker, case officer. Mm. His dad was in the CIA, and his behavior was just winked at. Mm-hmm. Heterosexual behavior. I mean, I I'm girlfriends the, imagining yeah. the behavior that the you know in the older times that the um, the spousal support units had to put up with Absolutely, in the name yeah. of their service. Yeah, there was a phrase called being a geographic bachelor. So if you mm-hmm. were sent overseas to a place where you're, it was dangerous or whatever and your spouse couldn't or wouldn't accompany you, you considered yourself a geographic bachelor and any any sort of behavior was just kind of tolerated by your Yikes. by your colleagues. Mm, um, yeah. But I'm sorry, what was your question? No, I, I, uh, I, I'm I, just sort of, you know, the, oh. I'm having nightmarish fantasies yeah. about same, but so what same people sex, had to deal with. Right, so same-sex behavior uh, or, you mm-hmm. know, our, our um, identity, being gay and lesbian, was not permitted. But it is now, mm-hmm. and there are, um, you know, employee support groups, assistance groups, and, and certainly— uh, same-sex partners will accompany their partners, mm-hmm. uh, their case officer, spouse, or partner overseas, and and support in the same way. Well, that's so we have made some progress. Right yeah, yeah, exactly. How did you become interested in this subject? Right. So I, um, my last book, Code Girls, mm. was about the women in World War II who were recruited to become uh, code breakers mm-hmm. for the American intelligence service that is now the NSA. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a, the code-breaking service during the war, and there were ten, more than 10,000 women who came to Washington wow. uh, during World War II to break Japanese and German codes, and it was vitally important to the outcome of the war. And it was, you know, an example, we, we use words like inclusion now, mm-hmm. um, and maybe they attract sort of eye-rolling in corporate settings, but World War II was really an example of inclusion, and it's one reason that the Allies won the war. The willingness to bring women into the war effort, to the the talents of the Tex- Tuskegee Airmen, you mm-hmm. know, black male pilots, mm-hmm. the the Navajo code talkers. Mm-hmm. The Allies were not perfect in their inclusiveness. The Army was segregated, but um, but it was 
a more inclusive time. And it made the difference at a time when we were fighting Nazi Germany, which was the very definition, you know, of non-inclusive mm-hmm. and, and the genocidal regime. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Japanese as well was a very, it was, that was mm-hmm. a very traditional society and women were not brought into the war effort. So, mm-hmm. so I was interested in that topic. And then I, I, um, sources were telling me just to sort of shift course for a second or to fast forward to more recent times, that there was a group of female analysts at the CIA in the 1990s, women having been channeled into these desk jobs that were less sexy, but very important. Mm -hmm. There were women analysts who, after the Soviet Union collapsed in 91, were starting to pay close attention to these fighters, these stateless terrorist fighters um, Islamic extremists who had been fighting in Afghanistan to help drive out the Soviet infidel, uh, what they as part of what they called jihad, war mm-hmm. against the Soviet on against the infidel, and there were women analysts who were paying attention to fighters who had come from other countries but weren't returning back to their countries and instead were coalescing into this. Um, uh, for a long time, the U.S. and other intelligence services didn't even know their name, the name, but it was Al Qaeda. They would eventually figure out that it was called Al Qaeda. It was this disconnected group of fighters who were communicating with each other and and conspiring, but didn't have the backing of a state or an army, didn't have uniforms. And they were being financed by this guy named Osama bin Laden, mm-hmm. who the women started paying close attention to and taking very seriously in the in the 90s and and early and mid 90s when very few people knew even knew the name Osama bin Laden mm-hmm. in the West. And and so I was interested in that cohort. And it was also starting to be acknowledged that these women had been predicting. They were and warning and warning. And they had a hard time in this very bureaucratic building, Langley. Mm-hmm. Get making their voices be heard. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the m- moral of that is that it can be an advantage in a spy service if you're a person moving about the street in a foreign country. But being inconspicuous and underestimated in a powerful bureaucracy that's very competitive and very elitist, being underestimated is not an advantage when you're trying to, right. when you're trying to convince people with a vested interest in an old threat, the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm that now resources should be shifted because there's a new threat and you've spotted it and they've never heard of you and you're just in your 30s and you're a woman, but you're seeing this thing. And the reason they're not seeing it is because they've been watching the Soviet Union for 20 years. Mm -hmm. And so um, hearing about that group of women and also knowing that this ability to target terrorists became even more important after the intelligence failure of 9-11 when these terrorists had to be tracked all over the world. And ultimately, you know, about 10 years later, Osama bin Laden was tracked and found. Mm-hmm. I knew that there that that women in this role, this new role called targeter that really built on what the vault women had done, mm-hmm. learning the biographies and the connections of, you know, enemy agents was something that women had been trained to do at the CIA since 1947. Mm -hmm. And whether it was Soviet scientists or members of the KGB or now terrorists, they knew how to build biographical profiles. They needed to, they knew how to understand human connections and who's talking to whom and why that matters. And so if you're Osama bin Laden and it's 2009 or 2010, and you know that you're being hunted 
And so Osama bin Laden wasn't using a cell phone, wasn't on the Internet, didn't have an IP address. He was hiding out in a compound in Abbottabad, Abbottabad, um, Pakistan. But the women targeters knew, okay, he's not online anywhere. We have all this great technology now, but we can't target him because he's not online. But he's got to communicate with family members or with other terrorist leaders or with his couriers who take messages. So they were able, they knew how important human connections are. It's not finding you, it's finding who knows you or who's related to you or who you have to communicate with. And do they use a cell phone? Are they on the internet? And, and you, you know, these concentric circles, you're going to find out who is on the internet and you're going to pinpoint them and mm-hmm. you're going to follow the Jeep mm-hmm. and you're going to find the compound and you're going to look at aerial surveillance technology and you're going to see, oh, well, we can't see inside that compound, but we're going to look at the laundry on the line that we can see. And so how many children are likely living there? How many families are there bodyguards there and where are they living and where are the how old are the children probably? Because if we're going to take out bin Laden, we want to minimize civilian casualties. And so women have built this ability to do this kind of really nuanced nosy, targeting and tracking. Nosy. Yeah, nosy. Perfect nosy. job yeah. for my mother. Yeah, yeah. She would be very right. good at yes. this. Yes. Wait, what when does that job start? How much how much are they paying? Oh, well, it's a career track now. Where is it? It's Where's a career building? track now, but but just along the lines of what we've been saying, it, it was a it was a career path that was sort of born during the early 1990s, and it was not a prestigious job mm-hmm. to have what? You're mm-hmm. just kind of following people, you're just learning some biographical stuff. Yeah. That's not sexy and exciting. So it was women who began to develop the ability to do that. So so I started having interviews with these um, women who served more recently mm-hmm. um, to try to understand how that job of, of targeter came to be, but also try to understand why these women back in the 90s had such a hard time getting their voices heard. And and that's when it became sort of clear that it had to become a big history um, because you really had to understand what these women had contended with and the stereotypes against women that really had prevailed for so long mm-hmm. during the Cold War. And the 90s were this pivotal time where the Soviet Union collapsed in 91. The adversary is gone and democracy is going to win, we think, all over the world, Mm -hmm. you know, yay. And so Congress, you know, um, wants to not defund, but take back a lot of the CIA's funding. Does it even still need to exist? Mm. So it's this really uncertain time. (laughs) Pencils down, everyone. (laughs) I think that's solved. Yes, Yes. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Why do we even need a spy service? Yeah. Um, Yay. So, uh, so they, but they were contending with all of this vestigial stereotypical thinking about women vestigial i mean it's echoing exactly the story that i heard this week on the daily the right. new york times podcast exactly. about the israeli intelligence yeah. woman yeah. who told them what was going to happen and they said your imagination is right. too vivid basically right. You're, right. you're hysterical yes. you're a hysterical woman yes i've been tracking that closely there have been a number of articles about that and i'm actually writing a substack post um about to try to there there have been at least seven or eight remarkable stories about the woman analyst in the in the New York Times Daily uh, podcast, which is that that reporter wrote this just stunning mm. you know article in mm. the New York Times about this female Israeli analyst who was stationed at in the Southern Command watching the border and uh, and and seeing battle preparations mm-hmm. and. And planting and it, of flags, yeah, it was invasions. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, 
infiltrating the border, downing a helicopter. And so she also knew that a document had been obtained that was the Hamas attack plan yeah. and that the, the the battle preparation she was seeing, they were using language that was also in the attack plan. And so right. she put together a very comprehensive report saying, no, this is real. This is, These are preparations for war, not just a raid. And and she couldn't, the, the command was so... It was like they were like the makers of the t- Titanic. You know, they mm-hmm. believed that their, that their defenses were impregnable and they believed that this was an imaginary scenario, that it was aspirational right. on the part of Hamas. So there was that woman yeah. uh, that the that the New York Times talked about. But there were also young Israeli female soldiers, a team of spotters who were also studying. They were just assigned to sit at commu- computer monitors, the same kind of grindingly detailed job, literally studying. And one of them said, I knew every rock. Mm. I knew every building. And mm. they too could see activity that was clear to them mm-hmm. that it was um, it, it was serious. military preparation, right? yeah. Right. And they too tried to get their voices heard. And one of them was told by her commander, you are the eyes, you're not the brain. Oosh. It is just your job to, to see what's going on, but not to analyze it. And, and also one of them, one of the ones who survived uh, said um, that she was told women aren't good at, at analyzing. Mm. So, so it's definitely the case, of course, that that lower level male soldiers can be told, you know, sit down, shut up. It's not your job. The leaders, it's their job to think. But, but in that scenario, she was specifically told women aren't. Mm. So there was a gender component sure. to that. So, um, it is horrific to to think that. You know, what I was writing about happened 25 years ago. Right. And and at the CIA, it is recognized now, I think, much more clearly that you have to have all the talent has to be at the table. And if you're hunting bin Laden, you need the female trackers, even if they're not high ranking officials. Mm-hmm. You need the women who are tracking on the ground to be at the table so that when President Obama says, well, what's your confidence level that he's really in the compound? And the higher ups are saying, well, I'm not sure we got the Iraq war wrong and maybe we got this wrong, too. I mean, literally, literally saying that the the ground level female targeters are saying, oh, we know he's there. We are 100 percent accurate. And they were listened to that time. So it's very troubling, you know, to know that this mindset has not um, has not gone away. Underestimate women at your own your peril. peril. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, my final question is something we ask everyone. You can answer it in any way you like. And that is, is there a person or an event or a thing that you would consider a significant other in terms of your own trajectory in your life? Well, uh, I am very, you know, being an author is really lonely, solitary yes. work. And, um, you know, like everybody else, I'm very grateful for my family and, you um, you know, my husband can't write the words for me, and uh, and but uh, is very good at uh, bringing me coffee and and being a, a cheerleading squad and um, and altering my workspace to make it as as sort of comfortable as possible. Nice. And uh, so I, but I have to, yeah. So so that person, um, but I have to say, writing never gets easier, and you never feel like you get better at it actually Mm -hmm. like every book is hard and it's just hard in a different way but over the years you you do at least get more patient with yourself and you say okay this draft isn't any good but i'll but i but i will i've got smart friends and i'll show Mm -hmm. it to my smart friends and they'll help me make it better uh so i would just say also over the years building up a really trusted set of friends and colleagues who will read drafts and and help make it better (laughs) 
That's great. Well, thank you so much for thank coming so much and for talking to me. us. This was really, really interesting. Thanks again to Liza Mundy for joining us, and thank all of you for listening to these bonus episodes. Our next batch of Significant Other Stories will be here before you know it. We can't wait to hear what you think of them and everything else we do, so keep the feedback and suggestions coming by emailing us at significantpod at gmail.com. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com.